and welcome to the City of the Great King podcast. Welcome back with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. Glad that you're here. I am back. <clears throat> back from Nova Scotia, the land in the east where the sun rises first and never sets. That's a joke. But I am back. I... I pushed really hard the week I was gone. It's a lot of driving, some 4,500 kilometers of driving I did in a span of, like, less than a week. And I pushed hard. And when you're traveling, you know, you eat like crap, you sleep like crap, and uh, then I exert all this energy doing what I'm doing out there. I get back, and my body just, like, shut down. So you might already be able to tell my voice is not completely normal. Uh, my charisma, oh, my famed charisma, is not the same as normal. I am recovering from sickness. It's like as soon as I got back, my body just decided, okay, we're going to stop now for a few days. <clears throat> and any of the noises and the grunts I make, they're not getting edited out. Oh, I haven't changed a single bit. No, nope, those are staying in there. No editing. <clears throat> but even if I won't be talking at the same volume... I learned, or I have learned, over the past probably year and a half, two years, that I'm really not impressed by people who have to yell and scream and raise their voice and shout to, to sound authoritative. You know what I'm saying? Like those pastors, or e not even just pastors, but like somebody who feels like they have to be really loud to command somebody's attention. You do hear it in preachers, though. Like, every sermon, they're just screaming at people, yelling, just raising their voice up to the nth degree. I'm not impressed by that. And even as a... Not only for, like, the social uh, part of it, like, yelling is just not very appealing to listen to, but I don't think it conveys the authority that yellers think it conveys. I, th I think of, like, a 12-year-old Jesus who's teaching all these people, and they're amazed by him. He, he wouldn't have some deep booming male voice yet like screaming at these guys like he's just teaching handling the word well and they're amazed by him i think also at our just this past saturday we had a men's breakfast at our church and i came and i was uh hosting the event and introducing the speaker and all of that and uh, I wasn't feeling too great then, but well enough that I could go. Well, the speaker, he was feeling even worse than me. Actually, he had been sick for an entire week, hadn't eaten much. He was on meds just to be there. He he had to sit while he was delivering the message that he prepared to give to us men. But he came, and he delivered it, and he was very soft-spoken. He couldn't raise his voice even if he wanted to, but... The way that he spoke, every word that he delivered was planned. He went by his notes. I, I, I don't go by a firm manuscript, but um, I can respect a good manuscript when I hear one. And he delivered his manuscript, and he was passionate about what he was talking about. Even though his voice was blunted, he was. I could see the passion. He's not browbeating anyone. He's talking about biblical masculinity, and he's just giving it in a softer voice, but he's looking at his audience whenever possible. And I can tell that he firmly believes in what he's delivering. He's handling the word well. And I'm with him. I'm with him on every single word of his delivery. Now, you don't you don't need to scream to be uh, 
uh, or, or yell, raise your voice, shout. You don't have to do that to convey authority. And anyway, that's that's a nice long intro for you. <clears throat> Where, what we were talking about, I was introducing a topic. Well, how I introduced it was through Christian nationalism, which is a hot issue now and probably will be for a little while. Um, I don't have too much to say about Christian nationalism itself. I think I had said that I, I want to read Stephen Wolfe's book on it before really, uh, before talking too much about that. Um, so right now, it's not like I'm a super, I'm, I'm not like an adherent to the what I understand it to be, but I'm not necessarily a detractor of it either. Uh, but I was just using that to springboard into what I really want to talk about, which is the reformation of worship. And the point that I was trying to make, and I'm going to say it again now, is that anybody who has any sympathy with this idea of Christian nationalism, and even if you don't like that terminology, and I'm not even sure that I like that terminology, but anybody who wants their nation to be one of righteousness is going to have this Christian nationalism label applied to them, probably for the next couple years. We'll see if it's just a fad or not, but you may not avoid the label, so just whatever, let them call you that. But if you're going to be involved in wanting to have a Christian nation and have a righteous nation, we need to start with reformation of worship. We got to figure out this worship thing first. Because if we don't, if we're not worshiping in our church rightly, there's no way we're pointing our nation rightly. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about the reformation of worship and where I had ended off was on where we are deficient before getting into uh, the, the more positive side. So there's a lot of deficiencies in modern worship. It's individualistic. Our music is, it doesn't seem to comport much with how music was done scripturally or even through the history of the church. We have a lot of rock concerts and light shows and fog shows and Jesus loves me, uh, this I know, for the Bible told me so. We, like, we don't have a lot of uh, literary depth to a lot of our music. It's more like Christian radio music is what we sing in church. We don't sing psalms, and that's, that's a real travesty. We Very few churches sing psalms. Uh, so we were talking about music. And then how we've moved away from the Bible's instruction on pastors, on preachers, and the safeguards around who is ordained and permitted to preach the word of God before God's people on the Lord's day. We've moved away from that. Uh, and then I think the last thing I was getting at was the deficiencies in the Lord's Supper. And there are many, and I won't get to all of them, but that's where I'll pick up now. The way that we do Lord's Supper seems completely inconsistent with the way that I, that my Bible seems to present it. Tell me if this is how it is for you, but in a lot of the churches I've been part of, and in the churches I've seen, the Lord's Supper seems to be a once-in-a-while ordeal. It can be once a month, once every three months, once every six months, once a year in some churches, so it's an occasional thing, and... What we do is we get really quiet and the pastor is going to 
read a couple of the passages and we're going to pass out a wafer, a little cracker or a little wafer stick or maybe a piece of bread. It's really nice when it's actual bread. And we'll pass out this and then we'll pass out a little bit of grape juice and we'll be very quiet and we'll take them one at a time and then we'll be very quiet and we'll just kind of remember silently to ourselves and then maybe there will be a prayer or a song a minute later and and we'll close Lord's Supper that way. And it's explained. The elements are always explained. But that's the way that it's typically done. And especially since COVID, it's this going back to the issue of individualism has gotten worse. Now we don't even take from a collective plate together anymore. At least the way that I grew up, you would pass out the communion trays. So all of your crackers, your wafers would sit in a communal tray that got passed pew by pew and you give it to the person next to you, take your little wafer, give it to the next guy. And then the cups of grape juice would come by, you take your cup, give it to the next guy. I mean, at least then, uh, that that isn't the best way either, I don't think, but at least then you're taking from a communal uh, plate that, that indicates some level of community in the communion. But especially since COVID, so many churches have individualized this practice even further where we have like you get your elements before service and they're in the like prepackaged cups prepackaged things and so now like whatever minimal community aspects there were there's not even that anymore it's the most individualistic thing ever and it's not what seems to be going on when you read of the lord's supper in the scriptures and then, as I was kind of getting at, then the whole point of it is, we like, what does the congregation do? Like, we're just quiet, and we're supposed to think and pray somberly, and it's so silent. And that's the way that it is. And you read the way that Scripture talks about it, and that's not it. But I'll get into that a little bit later. So... It's very individual, it's very small, like it's a tiny portion, just a small wafer and a small portion of juice, and that's the other thing, it's juice, it's not wine. I don't remember Jesus saying to pass out the juice, to pass out the water, to pass out the, I mean, he says pass out wine, and it's always wine, and you hear any other time in the New Testament when it talks about communion, it, it's wine. It's nothing other than wine ever. And wine is a very important symbol, of, biblically speaking. We lose a lot when we get away from wine. And, yeah, so to replace it with grape juice, it's not the same thing. Even if we want to say or feel that it is. <clears throat> so that, that that's an issue. Uh... Moving on from the Lord's Supper, other deficiencies in modern worship is, I'm going to say the sermon time, at least how we view the sermon time. Not so much the sermon itself, although that can be problematic, but if you think about why you go to church, like, what is it that you're there for? What speaks to you the most? Ugh, I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, I don't even like saying that. But uh, it, what is the part that you value the most when you go to worship? It's like, 
For some people, it might be the songs, or for others, they just really like seeing people. It's the fellowship. I think for a lot of people, going to church is about the sermon. You go there to hear the sermon. And not only is that why most of us are are mostly there and paying attention to, and because if the sermon, if you got a, poor, a less than good communicator, or the preaching is not up to your standards, like that's enough to make you to make you leave. Like you put a high priority on the giftedness of the preacher, and so it's a major part of what we typically value in a worship service, and it's reflected as well in how our liturgies apportion time in a worship service. You look at everything else that happens, you know, you might have 15 minutes of music, uh, 15 minutes of prayer, 45 minutes of preaching, and maybe 10 minutes of something else. But uh, if you do Lord's Supper, maybe 10 minutes of Lord's Supper and baptisms. So, but the majority of time is spent on the sermon. And the issue that I'm trying to point out is we make it seem as though preaching is so much more important than everything else that's going on in the worship service. And I don't think it's true. There's reasons why we inherently believe that, and it's kind of in our culture. But we can, we would be okay tolerating every other part of a worship service being completely deficient being unbiblical, but if we have a good preacher, we'll put up with everything else as long as the as long as this uh, preacher has a lot of giftedness. Or if every other part of your worship service is very God honoring, you're singing psalms, you're practicing Lord's Supper regularly, and it's in a biblical fashion. There's tremendous fellowship. There's antiphonal singing. I'll get into that antiphonal response going on. Uh, all the other parts that I'll get to later is very God-honoring and biblically focused, but the preacher is not as gifted. You will inherently come away that this is not as good of a church. You will want to go somewhere where the preaching's better. Like we inherently just think that preaching is there's as though there's more grace being communicated through the word than there is through sacrament. When, historically, biblically, it's both. The means of grace are word and sacrament, not word and at a lesser tier sacrament. And so we can, way out of whack, prioritize preaching. And that's why a lot of churches can survive and gain a whole bunch of members and become very financially flush by just giving moralistic lectures it doesn't even have to be proper expounding of God's word. But if what we prioritize is above all, above anything else is just the preaching, then yeah, you're going to be very successful in that type of culture that values that by just being a very gifted communicator. It's not about communicating God's word necessarily, but if you know how to stir the emotions, you got that winning smile, you got that Texas accent. I'm thinking of Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you look good, you smile good, you tell people what they want to hear. If what we value most is just that preaching time, yeah, you're going to have a whole... There, there's, it's not a surprise. You're going to have a whole lot of 
poor theology going around because it's mostly about preaching. It's actually not about the word. That's the catch-22 about preaching being the most important thing ever. Usually that's just a synonym for the giftedness of the communicator and not so much the expounder of God's word. There's a difference there. So we can become very moralistic in our preaching because we think it's, we, we just put way too much emphasis on it. And then other deficiencies in worship is that a lot of churches lack the pastoral or mediatorial prayer. That all important prayer where we communally confess our sins, and that's not everybody in the church is yelling out what sin they, they committed that, that, that week, uh, but it's the pastor who is representing the people, going before the Lord, saying that we have, confessing to God that we have fallen short, we've broken his law, we are guilty, we are not worthy. It is the man of God at the front representing the people in confession of sin. That is a very important part of a sermon. you got to get cleaned up in worship. You know, we don't go before the king in rags. He cleans us up, he clothes us in Christ, and then we go before him. We have this cultural idea, you know, come as you are, rags and all, rags and filth, and you were drunk on Saturday, oh, come on, it's just just come as you are, be dressed as, uh, be dressed immodestly, it's fine, just come. And I get it, there's some truth to that, of course, but you think a little bit deeper than that. You, you come as you are, but the Lord is going to clean you up. He's going to fix you. He's going to give you a new robe. He clothes you in Christ so that you can be made worthy to be in his presence. Come as you are doesn't mean you're worthy to be in his presence. The Lord has to re-clothe you first. And that's what that prayer of confession and then the words of absolution is meant to do. It cleans us up. It gets us pure before God again in a symbolic and in a liturgical sense, in a covenantal sense, and that we can be clean before God and proceed in worship. You can't proceed in worship unless you are cleansed. And so a lot of churches don't have that. They don't have the prayer of confession. or And some churches will have the prayer of confession, but not then the words of absolution. And that's an important part, is being declared cleansed. And that is a liturgical act that is actually happening. Something happens when we come into worship. And a lot of churches, just it's open season on prayer. It's just whatever. We're just going to pray some emotional stuff, whatever comes to mind. It's non-prepared prayers. It's whatever, shoot off the hip. And uh, we're going to tell stories in our prayers and just be all over the map. And it has nothing... Like, it's not thought out in a liturgical sense. And I'm bringing up that word a lot intentionally, liturgical, because liturgy is not a bad word. Liturgy is a very good thing. And we need to think um, a lot more biblically about what's happening in worship. And so, prayer, the way that we do prayer in the modern church is deficient in a lot of ways. I remember the first time I experienced what I thought was really God-honoring prayer and worship service. I was living in Montreal. I was still new to the city. And I had left the charismatic church just newly at that point, just barely. The first church I joined after that was a Baptistic church. 
and it was elder-led, the first elder-led church I've been part of. And they would have th uh, three, four, five, whatever, however many elders were there that week, come up during their prayer time, and each one of them would stand up there and have prepared prayers, each praying a specific portion uh, for, for a specific purpose. Like one would be praying for confession, one would be praying the uh, like a mediatorial prayer for the needs of the body, uh, the other would be praying for something else. And so they, all of it, each of them would pray for something very specific and purposed. Um, <clears throat> and it was all prepared. Like, it, what, they weren't shooting off the hip. And I was so blown away, impressed by that. Just that small thing that they put that thought into it made it so much better. Their prayers drew me into joy into the presence of the Lord like no other prayer had to that point. It was just very God-honoring. And and so since then, really, I've experienced it more and more. Um, and I value it highly, and I think the Bible uh, gives us a very good uh, reasoning for why we should do that. And then the final thing I'll mention, and I'm already recognizing that this is going to turn into a part three, which is fine. I love the topic. The last thing I'll mention on deficiencies in modern worship, and there's a, there's more than what I've said and I can go deeper into each thing I said, one day I will, but this is just an overview. The last thing is we've removed all symbolism in our worship. Now, when the Protestant Reformation happened, uh, I'm recording this on November the 1st, All Saints Day, so we just, a couple days ago, celebrated uh, the anniversary of the Reformation, and the Reformers were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, and they as a natural consequence of what the reformers were fighting for and standing against, it led to the iconoclastic uh, removal of symbolism. So they, they got rid of everything uh, that was a symbol or an icon that pointed to a greater reality. So no longer did we need stained glass windows. I said need. No longer would we have or see the, see the value in having stained glass windows. That would be out. The paintings would be out. Uh, colors representing different things would be out. Pictures out. And uh, a lot of it for very good reason. Uh, it turns into idolatry when we have all of this imagery everywhere. But we so far, the consequence of that went so far that what we think is all that is important in worship as a, like a visual representation is just my wooden chair, my wooden pew, the wooden pulpit, and a simple four-walled building. That's it. Nothing else in there. And the pure, like that's the Puritan image kind of that I have in mind. Like we were absolutely gutted everything and it's just chair pulpit walls some churches don't even have the cross anymore and some like got it was like up in arms when they brought when they had crosses in there but that's like the only symbol if there is any and i think we've lost something in the beauty and the depth of our worship by going so far the other way into not having symbolism you ever visit uh rc sproul's church he, in uh, Sanford, Florida, St. Andrew's Chapel, 
in Sanford, Florida, they built that place kind of like an old-style cathedral. It is beautiful. They've, they've brought back the stained glass. They have colors in there to represent different things and other types of symbols going on. And I believe there's paintings, too. It is just a marvelous work that takes you back to, like, those beautiful European cathedrals. You know, Christendom has got less beautiful physically. And I love that we reformed and we went back to the word that was extremely important. And Semper Reformenda, we continue to reform back to the word. And it's so easy to deform. And I would love to see it accompanied again with having, with seeing the value in making excellent churches. Like those beautiful cathedrals take you to a time when we, we understood weightiness. And it's really hard to describe because we're not used to it. But when you, you, you have that sense of heaviness when you go into those old style, beautiful cathedrals. Like the weight of glory is there, in a sense. And that goes back to the Old Testament. What they built was supposed to be uh, intricate, beautiful, or uh, ordained in all kinds of beautiful arrangements. And so it's, it's not without any biblical warrant that we build excellently and have symbolism in our churches. I don't want to return to images. Uh, I don't. I don't want anything to do with that. Scripture forbids images, but I, I do want to see a return of other types of physical symbols. We've lost. We've lost some depth and weightiness when we've completely gone away from it. So these are some of the problems in modern worship. Like I said, there's a lot more that can be said about it. But the reason that we can fall into so many problems in our worship is because we don't know fundamentally what worship is. I want you to think, what is happening when you, when you go to church? Like, like, what are you there for? I know I kind of asked that in a different sense earlier, like as in what is appealing to you the most, like we go for the sermon, but uh, not in that sense, in the sense of what is the reason that you go to church every week? We might say... Well, because the Bible tells us not to neglect going to church. We're supposed to go to church. We're Christians. We go to church. Okay, so that's a fine answer. God tells us to worship. All right, but you would probably also agree that he's telling you to do it for a reason, right? Like, he's not just arbitrarily telling you to do something. Now, God, of course, has the right to tell you to arbitrarily do something, but we know that it wouldn't be arbitrary. God does everything for a reason. It's all purposeful. God is not chaotic. He is ordered. He does things out of his eternal decree. It's all thought out. So there's a reason why he is telling you to come to worship every week. What's that reason? Why is he telling you to do this? Okay, so other people will say it's to worship him. Yeah, I completely agree, but you can worship God any other day of the week, can you not? Aren't we supposed to worship, in a sense, daily through, you know, we can be in our Bibles, we pray, we give glory to him in how we work. Is that not all types of worship, like our like a worshipful lifestyle? What's it about Sunday that is happening? 
Well, I'm just going to tell you now. Something is objectively happening when you go to worship. It's not just nice stuff that we do or just because we're told to. Like The thing that is actually happening is the covenant is being renewed. Okay? So, on the Lord's day, the Lord is uh, symbolically coming wherever his church is gathering, wherever there is a true church, the Lord is coming to that community, to those people in that church, and he is renewing covenant with them. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That's where we get these assumptions, and the New Testament continues these assumptions. But we are symbolically renewing covenant every single Sunday. And <clears throat> we get this... Uh, I actually talked about this in my Sunday school class. You can find those. I encourage you to listen to it. Covenant, uh, stru Covenantal structure. That's what it was called. Understanding and applying covenantal structure, I think is what I called it. So you'll get a, you'll get a more detailed uh, account of what that structure is, what the pattern is of this covenant renewal. But that is what's happening. Everything that's happening on a, on a Sunday morning, liturgically, is representing the renewal of our covenant with God. And we need that covenant with God. You don't got that covenant with God. You're cast out. You are apart from his presence. And so we see this a little bit in Exodus 24. I, this might take me to the end of today. But in Exodus 24, most of the English Bibles will title it The Covenant Confirmed. And I will end up reading pretty much the whole chapter. But it it starts like this. Then he, that's the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. I'll stop there for now. Okay, so right then and there, what starts this whole sequence, this covenant confirmation, this covenant renewal? What is starting it off? The Lord said to Moses, come up here. Okay, so worship starts, covenant renewal starts by being called to worship. You got to get called by God. You don't just decide, hey God, it's time now. You're going to renew this covenant with me. No, 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 no. The Lord calls us into worship. And I'll talk about how that corresponds in our worship service. Uh, I'll probably get into that next week. But the first step is God calls. And then he says, come up to the Lord. Um, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, they had to worship from afar. Only Moses could come near. The others weren't cleaned up yet. They couldn't come in. Moses was the one who was cleansed and able to go. He was the representative who was going to then get the word of the Lord and give it to the people. The others were coming, but they needed to get cleaned up. And again, that relates to uh, the confession and all of that type of stuff. So God sets rules over when you can approach him. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron, the 70 elders, they couldn't just come. God had to let them come into him. Let them come to him. So that's where it becomes really important that we then have that prayer of confession, that we confess and we are absolved, then we can come and be with the Lord. And then in verse 3, it's so that 
it showed that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. So this is when the one who is ordained to be delivering the word is going to then share some scripture reading with the people. And there's going to be different themes for the readings that we will choose in worship. Again, I'll get to that later. But he's going to read some scripture to the people, and the people are going to answer back. And in this case, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the people responding. And that uh, what we get out of that is what the Reformed eventually called the dialogical principle of worship. Dialogical, dialogue, dialoguing. Think going back and forth. Two people are talking. It's not just one person talking, but a dialogue. In worship, we're having a divine dialogue. And if you look up the dialogical principle of worship, it's really quite beautiful. But the way that it's basically set up, God says something, we respond. And God speaks through his people. When you go to church on Sunday, you're not hearing the audible verse, voice of God. You are hearing the word of God as it is delivered by, by his anointed, whoever's up there. And so scripture is read, we respond. Uh, this is called antiphonal response. That's another thing that we've lost greatly. We don't have any type of antiphonal response in a lot of modern-day Protestantism. <coughs> and I'd like to see a return to it. And then verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, so after they... Uh, Moses came back, he gave the scripture reading, the people responded, we will do. Moses is then going to continue that worship service. They, he, they were not able to go on until the people were allowed in, until, they, until this other stuff happened before, you couldn't proceed with the worship service. But then it continues, he's going to build an altar, he's going to send the men to go get the sacrifices ready. This was the main part here of the worship service in the Old Testament. During the Old Covenant, <clears throat> in the Old Covenant, this was the, the main event, you could say, uh, to, to use a poor term there. But what was happening here, the sacrifice and then the reading of the word, that corresponds with, uh, you could say, the preaching of the word and then the, um, the Lord's Supper afterwards, the sanctions of the covenant. But that's, so that's what he does. He's now going to sacrifice. That's going to then... Uh, feed the people grace, essentially. This is the Lord coming now and renewing covenant with them. They're going to sacrifice uh, as in their obedience to God, and then he's going to read the book of the covenant in their hearing. So this is like your sermon. And then again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. It is antiphonal. The people respond. Now, I'll say already now, so that you're not too upset or anything like that, but what a lot of churches, our symbolic response is our music. So 
some will some have the antiphonal response like the Lord be with you, and be with you, or and be with your spirit. Like that is a basic response that happens in a lot of high liturgy churches. Uh, I shouldn't even call that high liturgy. That's just normal liturgy. But in a lot of other churches that don't have that type of response, music is our response. So we have a scripture reading, and then we sing. We confess our sins, we sing. We hear the sermon, we usually respond to the sermon with a song. That is kind of our response. So here, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood, he throws it on them. This is the sanctions part of the covenant again. He, it's like you're binding yourself. like By the blood, you are being bound to the, the God who is making covenant with you. Verse 9, I'll read uh, the next couple verses, then we'll be done. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Okay, so they were far off before. But now, all the people who weren't cleaned up at that point, who couldn't proceed, now they everybody here is ready now. Um, things had to happen first. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I'll stop there. So God comes. He's making the. He's renewing covenant with them. They're now going. They're they're now committing themselves to this covenant, and they're doing it through food, food and drink. You know, this isn't the the time of. Um, of communion, of Lord's Supper yet, in the way that we understand it, right? Like, they're not taking bread and wine at this point, but they're e already eating and drinking as part of their worship ceremonies, part of the covenant renewal. Food and drink's an extremely important biblical symbol. I'll expand on that a whole lot more in the future. But we'll stop there. We've got a lot more to say about the Reformation of worship. But what is worship? What is actually happening is that the covenant is being renewed and that's what i mostly want you to come away with from this session is that is to think objectively about worship don't think emotionally subjectively ephemerally or ethereally there's a lot of nice big words but things are objectively happening you don't just go through the motions uh, blah, like, as though something, as though it's not really important. No, like very important stuff is happening in worship objectively. So, what is happening is the covenant is being renewed. We're gonna pick up on this next week. I'm really excited. I love this topic. I hope you are. It, it is coming across to you how important I think this is, and that you get excited about it too. Uh, I got quotes to give. I got books to get into, and all sorts of other things about practically reforming our worship. So thank you for listening. Please uh, continue to pray for me to in my recovery. I'm still recovering, obviously. Thank you for stopping by. Please consider the Patreon. Appreciate it if you uh, gave me your coffee money for one day a month. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Go in the nations. Goodbye. <laughs>